All right. Hi, Jay. Hey, Michelle. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. How are you? I am doing so much better than the last time that we recorded. I mean, I love that. That makes yes. me so happy. Yes. Um, do you want do you want to give us a, a mental health update? Are you doing great? Life's good. I, I mean, I'm you feeling, have Jade on you right now, and I that's do. amazing. So my cat um, likes to be on my shoulder like a parrot um, as I when I'm talking to people. And so she's she's here. You can probably hear her purring. Anyway, so she, she makes me happy. And um, my little son, Benny, makes me happy and work's going well. And I've been going outside and, you know, doing my daily. Um, I've been doing those affirmations. Michelle actually sent me this app um, and she has it too. And it's called um, the I am app. Yes. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. It's so amazing. So I have it set to send me like 12 different affirmations yeah. throughout the day. And I have it for like all the topics. So it's like body positivity, um, like basically abundance mindset and just like um, being gentle, like and kind to yourself and reiterating like positivity. So I, um, whenever I get the affirmation, I read it out loud because I think that that's really important. Um, it helps me kind of like, uh, internalize it. Yeah. And, and actually like take it in. Yes. And yeah. I've been, I've been reading more. So I, I noticed that, you know, when I'm in, in the midst of like a, a really bad, um, depressive episode, I really do lose my um, the will to do most things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, especially the things that I really enjoy doing. So like reading, I haven't been reading for a while, but I started reading again. And, um, for this episode, I, I've been doing some research, which is nonfiction reading, but it's all very fascinating. So I, I think that it's, um, probably it's a good thing. You know, I need to mix it up every once in a while and not just read fiction. So, um, yeah. How's your mental health? Uh, my mental health is doing really well, actually. Well, I shouldn't say really well. It's doing well. Um, okay. Seasons are changing. So yes. that's rough for me. Um, but Marvin and I have been going for walks and Robert's been coming with us when he can, when he's not tired, but he has a really physical job. Yeah. So sometimes when he gets home from work, he doesn't really have the energy to do anything Whereas I sit at a desk most of the time. So I need to get energy out and Marvin. So he doesn't become a little asshole also needs to get energy out um, because he's been destroying shit since patch died. Mm. Um, So it's just, yeah. So yes. And hopefully we'll get him a cat and then that'll boost my mental health too, because I love nurturing things. Um, And I've been down to visit Bo. And Bo really missed me while I was on vacation. Bo's the cow, uh-huh. obviously, the cow. for those who don't He's know. So um, cute. And he also missed me while I was gone. So that was great. The owner Little. said that he was acting weird while I was <laughs> because gone. Because you weren't coming to see him. And I was like, yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's my story. Um, so my mental health is pretty good. But I'm really excited for this episode and we are chatting a little bit before we started recording and I am so stoked. All right. So topic yeah. is millennials. Yes. We are doing our first part two, which mm-hmm. is exciting. But after babysitting last week or last recording time, I yeah. zoned out um, and could not <laughs> function. So also it as I was listening to it. I was like, it's kind of started um, losing momentum from my end also. 
um, it's like the first part I thought was really succinct. It was really organized. And then we really, we took some, like some pretty big tangents, I would say, but we came back and we talked about millennials and our plight and what people think, you know, say about us. So to like, to recap, like, let's talk about some of the things we covered last week. It was a lot. Yeah, Remind me. Okay, so we talked about the negative things that people say about us, um, but I also talked about some of the positives um, and some of the things that we as a generation are doing to kind of change a lot of major things. So um, we're changing parenting, we're changing education, we're changing uh, the diet culture, we're changing um, you know fitness, how how we interact with the world. We created the social um, economic system, basically where we created all these apps and, you know, platforms. Um, we, we were born with the internet, so we are the internet generation. Um, and so, yeah, we talked about all of those things and we dove deep into the the facts and figures about the millennial generation, um, and what makes us, what makes us tick. We talked a lot about us in the workplace, um, and how we get a lot of flack for, uh, being quote unquote entitled and, um, you know, just that we like technology and that we like working in group settings and blah, de, blah, de, blah. And really the, the conclusion that we came up with was one, it was our parents' fault. Yes. <laughs> it's, okay. It's not their fault, but the way that our <laughs> parents, the way that our parents raised us had negative consequences for either. So there was, you know, the hovering parents or the helicopter parents that started in our generation or, and then there's like, there's, you know, neglect. Um, can I, which is, can I throw something in? Sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean yeah. To interrupt you. No, of course. My thought is like, most of the time they didn't do it on purpose to us. No, just they did the best with what they were told on how to parent and made choices based off how they were raised. And so exactly. it just kind of led here. And now, our generation, the millennials are really figuring it out. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Sorry. So, didn't mean to interrupt, but I did I didn't want to blame the boomers or older generations necessarily. No, I exactly. And I I'm I'm not trying to blame them either. I was just going through the facts. Um, and you know, that's kind of what we said. So where we landed um, at the end is we decided, so I started talking about the big events that shaped our generation. And um, Michelle was like, hey, wait a second. We've already been talking for like two hours. Let's make this a whole se- like separate episode because that's a lot in itself, right? Just like everything that we're changing um, is a lot in itself. And I could, we could even have a third episode about millennials, but um, probably won't. So. <laughs> Not, you know, don't want to bore you guys too much, but I, the references will be there. So if you guys want to nerd out and like read the books that I've found, um, please do. Um, yeah, and you can always like comment and we can always circle back later exactly. to rediscuss millennials. It's fine. We yes. live this life. So we are never sick of talking about it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so. All right. Tell me about these events. Said, oh my gosh. Okay. So I found this um, this one ebook called Scandalous 50 Shocking Events You Should Know About So You Can Impress Your Friends. And so this book actually um, starts back in the early like 1900s um, and it goes all the way through the two, early 2000s. 
And so I, I found, um, the events that shaped us, I'm going to start with, um, 1991 is the year. Um, and so for us elder Melens, we were alive when this happened. Um, however, we were pretty young. So I don't know if I remember this actually happening when it happened, but all of us have heard of this story, um, in subsequent years. And, um, this is something that's still unfortunately an issue today. Um, and so the, with, without further ado, in 1991, the event that shaped us was the police beating of Rodney King, which sparked uh. the LA race riots. Okay. So in March, 1991, um, Rodney King was pulled over for apparently drunk driving. He was pulled over by three officers and um, they took a uh, video. Somebody actually filmed this. So this was like one of the first times that um, police brutality was actually filmed. This was, you know, prior to social media. So think about how much of an impact that that could have created. But basically um, they they sh the video showed that there were um, three officers and 11 more officers um, looking back, like they're on looking. As King was hit with batons 56 times, he was kicked and he was shocked with a stun gun. Um, and when the beating was over, the officers hogtied him and left him on the side of the road until the ambulance came. And then um, when King was released from the hospital, the district attorney um, said that there wasn't enough evidence to charge him with anything and he was set free. Um, but he, his, um, injuries were pretty severe. He was very badly bruised. His leg and his cheekbone, his eye socket were all broken. His skull was fractured and he was left with permanent nerve damage to his face. So this was like a huge big deal, right? Because the three officers involved with their attack, they were charged with assault with a de deadly weapon and excessive, excessive use of force. And the TV stations played this footage and viewers were absolutely horrified by this. Um, and but for the African American community in Los Angeles, they actually there was a little bit of an upside because they were like, finally, people can see how how police have been treating how they've been like treated. Us. Yeah, how yes, they've been treated all, all these time. years. Exactly. <sighs> so so there was all this drama. They everybody wanted the police um, chief to step down. Um, and some of the things that came out of this, so. The verdict angered a lot of people. Hours later, so after the verdict came out, were that's they acquitted? When the riots started. Let's were the see, policemen what? acquitted? It says the so the mayor organized an investigation into their police behavior, which found that this type of abuse happened frequently to minority suspects and usually went unpunished. The officers caught a break when an LA Superior Court judge moved their trial out of LA saying the public outrage in the city was too widespread for the men to get a fair trial. So the trial was then moved to a suburb outside of LA that had almost no black residents, um, but had, of course, lots of white law enforcement families who were very sympathetic to the officers. Um, you got so to be I, kidding me. Right. Yeah. So I would say that's kind of, that's a mistrial, I would say. Um, but so during the trial of a, on April, in April of 1992, the police argued that King was drunk, threatening, and too strong to subdue without a beating. The jury agreed 
and the officers were fully acquitted. So yes, that yeah, that's happened. some so, bullshit. So, I want to say it was like April fourteenth, and the only reason I know that is because that April, Sublime song. No, it's nineteenth. April, um, April twenty ninth. Um, tell me where were you? There was a yeah, yeah. something. Um, yeah, the Sublime song. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. So okay. actually, that's the reason I knew about this is because of the sublime. So I'm saying it's the only reason <laughs> I knew too. But sublime but that shows the power generation, you know? and that shows the part power of music and media and getting social issues dealt with, or at least totally. acknowledged. Anyway, okay, so some bullshit happened, and so they were acquitted. the verdict was like, what the? Everybody was like, what the fuck? And so in then the race riot started. Totally. In mostly a predominantly black neighborhood of South Central LA, LA, the residents took their anger to the streets and they were rioting and they, you know, they were smashing things, looting things, burning things. Um, Even stores that had signs saying black owned were not spared from the destruction. It was actually the mayor declared a state of emergency and he set a citywide curfew. And then President Bush, so the first Bush, um called in senior yeah bush senior he called in the national guard the army and the marine to control the violence yeah um, let's put in some overkill and then kill some more black people why don't we to- okay so sorry after two days of rioting there were 50 people killed um more than 2,000 were injured and there were 7,000 arrests made and a billion dollars in damage was done to the city so here's the aftermath um, for the police officers. After the riots, President Bush actually worked with the attorney general to put the officers back on trial and this time on federal char- charges for violating King's civil rights. Unlike the first criminal trial, the second trial was held in L.A. and had a racially mixed jury and included moving testimony from King himself. Um, the commanding officer um, was Stacy Kuhn and Lawrence Powell were the officers responsible for, um, he was responsible for most of King's beating. They were both found guilty and were sentenced to 30 months in federal corrections camps. Um, Theodore Brisnio and Timothy Wind Wind were found not guilty, but they were both fired from the LAPD soon after the federal trial. And King, Rodney King actually received a um, $3.8 million settlement from the city of Los Angeles. And, um, but he apparently kept getting arrested afterwards. And, uh, in 2008, he was at a recovery center in Pasadena. Um, and it was featured on the reality show celebrity rehab with Dr. Drew. (laughs) So he said that he got clean and ultimately forgave the right, the the officers who attacked them. But I mean, that's crazy. So I just looked up. By the way, he died on June 17th, 2012, according to Wikipedia. Um, I just wanted, I was curious if he was still alive. But no. well, Accidental drowning was his cause of death. Interesting. That sounds kind of sketch. I know. I'll do more research. I'll update <laughs> okay, later. So, now I'm really curious. <laughs> so why we should still care about this. Um, obviously, police brutality is not over, um, as we saw last year and pretty much every year that there's, you know, always inadequate uh police brutality to people of color and minorities usually um and uh us white peeps you know get get off pretty lightly i would say which is bullshit um but basically this scandal since this was like the first 
videotape of this type of um, crime against police officers um, actually um, was proof that the police were brutalizing the black community. And that was obviously a situation that went unacknowledged and unpunished for years. So even though they were acquitted in the criminal trial, um, it did show the public um, that they need to prove that they're being victimized and call attention um, and catch yeah. it on video. So I think that was probably like the very first time, you know, in our history where people were documenting things like this. Right. Well, and, and, it, and it sounds what you just said, it made it sound like, um, you know, we have to capture this on video. So now when we wonder why everyone captures things on video, this is a great example because the justice system failed and then redeemed themselves all because yes. of this video evidence. And without it, it would have just been blame that black man. Right. I'm, That's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. So 1992, like 1992, right? Um, I mean, that is crazy. It's, it's been um, a lot, a long time, over 25 years since that's happened. And it, it's really sad to me that not that much has changed. I mean, at least we're documenting things, you know, but it's just, I, I just, that's like a whole other, whole other topic. But um, yeah, so that was the first thing I think that was really, uh, a shaping um, activity for like our generation. Um, this uh, is remember skipping ahead to 1993. I don't know if Michelle's gonna guess this. She probably is not. Okay. 1993. Wait. 1993. Now I want to guess. Can you give me some hints? Oh, okay. Where it's Where with, are we at? Like what? Where are we at? Geography. It's with a major pop star. And um, uh, child. Uh, oh, Michael Jack. It's got to be Michael yes, Jackson. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Yes. Keep going. What's so up? Michael Jackson, star, 1993. Michael Jackson was accused of molesting, molesting a 13 year old boy. Um, so Jackson was never convicted, but his, be his bizarre behavior has led to many allegations or. Michael Jackson also is no longer alive. I believe he passed away in um, 2000 something, 12, 2000. I want to say it was like eight or nine because it was my, my sister's bachelorette party is when he passed away. It's the only reason I know uh, that. All right. Well, very interesting. So um, we all, I think we are all kind of familiar with Michael Jackson, right? He was in the Jackson five. Um, he, uh, but then Michael Jackson, he went through a bunch of um, surgeries to change his skin color. You know, he was born black, but he wanted to be white. So he went through all these surgeries, had a bunch of plastic surgery. Um, and then in the late 1980s, um, people were like very obsessed with his increasing weirdness um, and not really his musical genius. Um, he worked his most of his life under his father. So as an adult, he actually became obsessed with reclaiming his lost youth. And he, he bought a property in California and he named it Neverland Ranch, uh, which was a 3000 acre property um, filled with amusement park rides, video games, a zoo. And he hung out with an entourage of mostly underage boys. And he had a pet champion, pet chimpanzee, chimpanzee. Named Bubbles. Yes. Aww. 
So yeah. Um, and then, so Jackson was altering his image, right. With, he had a bunch of nose jobs. Um, he only admitted to one, but pretty sure he, uh, had lots and his face actually, or he got punched in the face a bunch. Who knows? (laughs) I mean, the way that his, it looks like it's going to, it was going to fall off, you know, Mm -hmm. like it just seemed so uh, despite all this, like he's, so he's pretty bizarre. But the allegations began to surface in 1992 that Jackson had kissed and sexually touched one of his young friends, um, a 13-year-old boy named Jordan Chandler. And according to Jackson, uh, Evan Chandler, who's Jordan's dad, tried to use his own his son's accusations of sexual molestation to blackmail Jackson for millions of dollars. Um, but Jackson refused to be blackmailed. So Chandler uh, went to the police and the press. So there was no real proof to back up what what Chandler said, but the media was like going obsessed with this, right? So uh, tabloids, I mean, think about, um, again, back in the 90s, we didn't have like the internet in 1993, the internet wasn't a thing yet, you guys. The internet wasn't invented until 94 or like it, it, it wasn't like streamlined until like 94. So we they it was still very much like tabloids newspapers like regular types of media quote unquote media that you you know that you used to think about back lots in the, of gossip yes totally so scathing stories so they're hanging out they took pictures of neverland um and then the state of california opened criminal investigations against him and chandler's filed a civil lawsuit so police actually ended up searching neverland ranch uh for evidence and they uh, they got jackson to agree to a strip search so they could check up check his genitals to see if it matched up with jordan's description um but that wasn't a definitive match jackson so jackson was never arrested because there was not enough like proof i I have a Um, quick question yes i would think that in order to match the description of genitals there would have to be some defining thing yeah right like a scar or curvature or something right like you can't just like look at a penis and be like yep that's the one that raped me (laughs) that's the one uh right and actually you might just forget that completely right you might want to just block that out that's very interesting so i'm very curious now like if there was some sort of determining factor that I don't, well, I don't know, because so, uh, anyway, you can continue about the. Well, so this is uh, this is a quote from Jordan Chan- Chandler's grand jury testimony in December of 1993, accusing Michael Jackson of sexually molesting him. Uh, Chandler quotes, Michael Jackson put his tongue in my mouth. I told him I did not like that. Michael Jackson started crying. He said there was nothing wrong with it. Michael Jackson told me that another of his young friends would kiss him with an open mouth and would let Michael Jackson put his tongue in his mouth. Michael Jackson said that I did not love him as much as this other friend. And then um, in, in a quote from Michael Jackson um, w- was taken in 2003 with an interview with the British reporter Martin Bashir, years after the molestation, obviously. Michael Jackson says, I have slept in a bed with many children, dot, dot, dot. It's very right. It's very loving. Hmm, okay. That's, that, that's just not Whoa. Right, Michael. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm sorry, so but just, if they're not your kids or like your <laughs> blood relatives, you should not. I mean, I'm, I'm not even going to say blood relatives. If they're not your your children or personally in your care, like I'm thinking of um, like Autumn's daughter, who's like my goddaughter. Yeah. Like if she were with, if she were, if she became under my care solely, then if she needed to sleep in bed with me, fine. But like. Even now, though, I wouldn't if I was like babysitting overnight or something, I don't think I would sleep in bed with her. I would have her sleep in bed and I would sleep on the floor, like just because it's a little weird. But your kid, I think it's like if it's your own child, that's different. But even I just weird boundaries. I feel like um, for like for me, for Ben, like if you were like watching Ben, I wouldn't have a problem with that. But we could have that conversation. You're right. It is boundaries and it's what people are comfortable with. Right. Like, um, because sometimes he gets scared still and he wants to he wants to climb into bed. Usually he sleeps by himself, but you know, every once in a while that happens. Yeah, so, for sure. Anyway, sorry, he, that's just weird. So, okay, so it's yeah. normal is what Michael Jackson is saying. It is normal. I, I don't know if sleeping with that many children at one time in a shared. Oh bed no, is I any- agree that he okay. his actions aren't normal. He's yeah. I was just restating okay. he I, thought it was normal he right? thought it was normal okay yes yes where i would say most people did not think it was <laughs> yes um, in the court of public opinion michael jackson is guilty of all charges definitely yes for sure um so actually in 1994 his insurance company um reportedly forked over 20 million dollars to the chandler family to settle the civil case out of court um, and then after the payout, Jordan didn't want to testify anymore in criminal court. And so that made people believe that all the Chandlers wanted was the money and all of the criminal charges were dropped. Seems like they wanted the money, but even though the lack of proof, all of this, all these accusations followed um, Jackson like throughout the years and it didn't help his, rep- his reputation at all, obviously. Um, why we still care. Uh, this was a great example of character assassination. Michael Jackson lived an eccentric lifestyle, but there was actually no proof that he ever did anything inappropriate with any kids, even though he was like living in this magical, you know, playland or whatever. Um, but many people were willing to believe the worst about him. So, and the media played a huge role in helping the public form its negative opinion of the pop star. All right. So obviously the media, um, still plays a huge role in, um, and how things are shaped today and social media is like a big proponent of that. One of the books I found was actually all about the internet age and how um, the media has been shifting things and really twisting it so that it's more of like an entertainment factor and it's not necessarily as factual as we would like to believe. Um, and so well, think it about- just reminds me of from the uh, serial killer if it bleeds, it leads. Like it became more of entertainment. Like, yeah, but that, I mean, that it becomes no, right. more entertainment and less factual. Right. Right. Um, uh, also, it, it also showed the side effects of young stardom. Um, since, you know, Jackson, since all the Jacksons started as young children, um, it, sh- it showed that his own obsession with childhood, like as an adult, was a side effect of him missing out on his own childhood. Um, so 
Yeah, it I can seems, see that. You know, it's the, so it, while his behavior seems super weird, Michael Jackson was probably dealing with a whole bunch of like trauma and unresolved, you know, childhood issues that were then following him into adulthood. Um, and maybe his identity and all that fun stuff. Of course, I'm speculating and we can't talk to him because he is no longer living. Um, but that is that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Okay. I never thought about Michael Jackson and his trauma from being a childhood star and how that might have contributed to his odd behavior. Now I, I want to wrap I want to rabbit hole that later. <laughs> all right. I'm glad these are all topics that we could all just rabble rabbit hole a little bit longer. Okay. All right. So uh the next one, I don't know if we I don't remember this. It's very interesting. Um in 1993, also, this one is titled FBI Raid on Religious Sect in Waco, Texas. Oh, yeah, leaves, Waco. Yeah, leaves 75 dead in a fire. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so the branch, Dave, David, what do you call, David, Davidians. David. Davians. Yeah. David, Davidians. Davidians. What a, yeah, Davidians. They were a religious group who took the Bible, Bible very literally, and they spent most of their time preparing for an upcoming apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, they lived in a secluded cluster of cottages in buildings outside of Waco, Texas. David Korsh um, was um, born Vernon Howell. He went to live with them after his dream of becoming a rock and roll star didn't work out. And after just a few years on the compound, he actually became the sex leader and he started calling himself the Messiah and said the best way to prep for the end of times was to cut off ties with the outside world and stockpile food and weapons. It's a cult. It's a cult. Yes. Which is a topic that Michelle's going to talk about later, like in a different episode. Um, Okay. So not all of these folks were very happy with Koresh and some members Koresh Koresh I'm sorry Koresh yes K-O-R-E-S-H yeah Koresh Koresh so some members started to defeat defect and speak out against him and they even told a local paper that um while the men in the compound were sworn to celibacy Koresh took many of the women as his quote-unquote wives and some were barely in their teens. Gross. So I was going to say, I think some were children. Uh, cool. Cool. So they also said that Koresh was abusing the children in other ways, too. So when the local police learned about frequent ship- shipments of firearms to the compound, they asked the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or ATF for sure, to help mm-hmm. investigate the situation. So on, on February 28th, 1993, the ATF showed up at the compound with a search search warrant. Um, but unfortunately, somebody had already told these people, the cults, cult people, about the upcoming visit, and they were armed and ready. I believe it was a media slip. I think someone in so and I'm being I'm just trying to remember from memory. Um, I believe it is someone from the media. Um, heard from the police department uh the local pd so it was the atf that was going in to do the raid but the local pd let it slip to the media i think and then 
that's how it got to them. There was like some sort of slip up with the local PD. The compound remained under siege for 51 days. Yes. Okay, it was so a standoff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the shootout, um, the shootout ended with four dead ATF agents. Another 16 mm-hmm. agents were wounded and um, Koresh and an unknown number of Davidians. <laughs> so within hours of that, um, they had local police, the Texas Rangers, a bomb squad, and the FBI arrive to help the ATF. Um, but inside the compound, uh, Koresh and his followers, which included 42 kids, they locked their doors, drew their guns, and stood their ground for 51 days. Okay. So mm-hmm. during that time, Michelle, that's when all of the like media flocked to the site. Um, while the hostage negotiations were trying to convince Koresh to let them in or let the kids out, um, Koresh did release 35 people, including 21 of the kids. But he also sent some weird messages. One day he promised to end the standoff if a tape of his religious ramblings was broadcast on TV. Uh, so the tapes were played, but the standoff continued. And then three days later, um, Koresh released a little girl with a note pinned to her jacket. That said, once all the children were released, that the adults would kill themselves. Okay. So everybody was frustrating. So frustrated, right? The FBI tried to put pressure on Koresh by shutting off the electricity on the compound and shining spotlights into the buildings all night, blasting annoying music from- I was going to say, it was really loud music. I remember that. Yeah. So, but nothing worked. Um, And Koresh continued to make and break promises. Um, so as the siege dragged on, the FBI and Attorney General General Janet Reno, ooh, yeah, that's a name that brings back memories right? of the 90s. They started to worry about the kids and the possibility of a mass su- suicide. Suicide. So Janet Reno gave the FBI the go-ahead signal to use tear gas to flush Koresh and his followers out of the biz- out of the buildings. So on April 19th. That's when they started um, squirting the tear gas into the holes that they drilled into the walls. And the Davidians started shooting at them. But the FBI kept pumping the tear gas in. So, but the Davidians put on gas masks. Okay, so that didn't work. Um, (laughs) So that plan was a bust. And then fires were set inside the compound and more gunshots were heard. Everybody, you know, the FBI was like, everybody run, put out the flames, but it was windy and the fire spread really fast. Um, And so when this finally ended, there were 75 Davidians dead, including 25 children and Koresh. Um, So basically his compound ended up all dying. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So President Clinton, okay, this was in President Clinton's presidency. He actually ordered two separate investigations into the ATF and FBI's actions to find out how those deaths could have been um, avoided. And the Treasury Department blamed the ATF, saying that they should have called off the first raid when the agents realized um, Koresh knew that they were coming. And Mm -hmm. then the Justice Department blamed Janet Reno and the FBI, saying that they should have waited to see if negotiations with Koresh paid off before busting him with the tear gas. Um, and then an independent counsel report was released in 2000 
which cleared the government of wrongdoing and blamed Koresh and the Davidians for firing the first shots and starting the deadly fires. So, yeah, that's very interesting. But the, so this is why we care, because the way that the, you know, the FBI and um, how they responded, they, they actually, uh, the creation of the critical incident response group was then created in 1994 um, from, in the FBI. And they were the ones that um, take charge if there's a terrorist attack, a natural disaster, prison riot, or like something like a religious group <laughs> trapped in a compound. <laughs> Koresh and his followers actually inspired other radicals. Uh, April 19th was already a well-known date among Americans who considered the federal government their enemy. But after the raid on Waco, April 19th, which is very interesting because April 20th was actually the date that um, that event, yeah, that Columbine happened. Um, I know, I know you're getting to it. Sorry, I didn't mean to ruin it. No, no, that's okay. Uh, Anyway, so apparently that's now known, April 19th is apparently known the date of doom, apparently. and it's something about anti-government radicals. So cool. Remember this one? The Olympics, 1994, Michelle. The Olympic bombing in Atlanta? Nope. It, oh. Nope. At the Olympics in 1994 with some ice skaters. Ooh. The, uh, I for, I, why did I forget their names? The blonde and the brunette and the yes. other one like. Tanya Harding Harden. and Nancy Kerrigan. That's it. Mm-hmm. So 1994, the top contenders for the figure skating competition was uh nancy kerrigan and tanya harding they were both you know from america but two days before the usfsa um a man clubbed kerrigan's right knee with a metal baton in a surprise attack as she was leaving the rink which made her force or forced to withdraw from the competition um Though she was back on the ice within weeks, she Harding easily skated her way to first place and secured herself a spot on the Olympic team. Even though she couldn't compete, Carrington Carrigan was allowed to join the Olympic team too. Um, they wanted her on the team so badly that they scored the rule books until they found a loophole saying that they could put a skater on the Olympic team even if she hadn't competed in the most recent recent nationals. So at first, the attack seemed like a work of an unhinged fan. But within a week, the FBI was investigating Harding's ex-husband, Jeff Galuli, who she was living with at the time, along with Harding's boy bodyguard, Sean Eckhart. The motive was obvious. Kerrigan was Harding's toughest competition in the 1994 championships. Plus, Kerrigan had beat Harding out for the bronze medal at the 1992 Winter Olympics in Albert bill france sending harding home empty-handed so eckhart actually confessed right away to his part in planning the attack he also implicated harding and galui as co-conspirators and told the fbi that two of his thug buddies shane stant the knee whacker and Derek smith the getaway car driver were hired to carry out the actual attack galui and the thugs turned themselves in but Harding continued to deny any role in the attack, though many found this hard to believe. Then, during a 
pre-Olympics press conference three weeks later, she tearfully admitted that she found out after the attack that Galuli and Eckert were involved and she helped them cover things up by lying to the police, but wasn't in on the plan. So this is just a whole, he said, she said, like, whatever. Okay. Um, so as this kept unfolding, the figure skating officials had to decide if they were going to actually let Harding compete in the Olympics. Um, they tried to get Harding to withdraw, but she refused. So when they tried to hold hearings to investigate her part in the attack, she filed a $20, a $20 million lawsuit to stop them. Um, wow. So tired of that drama, the officials actually announced that she'd be on the team, but warned they'd resume the investigations after the Olympics. So the press, this was another media heyday. They took full advantage of this ongoing controversy and they turned the 1994 Lily Hammer Olympics into a Harding versus Kerrigan battle royale. There were hundreds of reporters. I, I remember this too. I remember it was a very, it was very televised. Um, and they talked about this yeah. for weeks and weeks. So everybody was psyched to see them. Um, and actually, this was one of the top 10 most watched network broadcasts of all time with 48 million viewers. Wow. Um, so Kerrigan went on to win the silver medal in individual women's figure skating. And Hardy came in um, at eighth place. So Harding was actually charged with um, conspiracy to hinder an investigation for her role in the cover-up. And she got 500 hours of community service and a $100,000 fine. She was also stripped of her 1994 USFSA championship title and was forced to resign, which ended her skating career. In the years to follow, a sex tape of her and Galuli was released to the press and she was arrested for driving drunk. And then she spent three days in jail for attacking a boyfriend with a hubcap. So it just sounds like Tanya's got some violence issues. Okay. Seriously. Uh, Nancy. Don't worry. She had nothing to do with that. <laughs> okay so nancy kerrigan after winning the silver medal at the olympics kerrigan was more popular than ever she graced the color covers of magazines like time and people she was a guest host on saturday Night live and starred in a parade at disney world um and she and they were her new multi-million dollar sponsor but she never competed again in the olympics harding's actions was a colorful representation of taking out the competition by any means necessary, including violence. Um, during the Democratic primaries for the 2008 presidential election, strategist claims that Obama's only way to win was to pull a Harding and use vicious tactics against the person ahead of him. He publicly insisted, however, on running a positive campaign and not stooping to dirty tricks. And he won anyway. Woo! Okay. The scandal made figure skating a more watched event. So before this, figure skating was generally seen as unexciting TV. And then they you throw some drama in this. And, and now boom. everyone wants it. Exactly. Oh, here's another one. OJ Simpson was on oh, yeah. trial for murdering his ex-wife. So just so you guys know, this was a wildly publicized trial. I think this was like the most publicized trial um, for its time on television. They literally recorded it like so i remember watching this in i did school, too um which is crazy so this was in june her friend ron goldman were found 
in a pool of blood in front of Brown's condo. They had both been viciously stabbed and Brown was almost decapitated. Gross. Um, so while they were gruesome, while these murders were gruesome, the news, why it was like so heavy in the news was that Brown was recently divorced from football hall of famer and movie star OJ Simpson. While the public found it hard to believe that Simpson could ever commit such a horrific act, within days of the murders, evidence, including blood found at the scene of the crime, pointed to Simpson as a prime suspect. Simpson's lawyers worked on a deal that allowed Simpson to surrender to the LAPD quietly to prevent an embarrassing public arrest. But on the morning he was supposed to give himself up, Simpson left the house of a friend and bolted in a white Ford Bronco with another friend, leaving behind what looked like a suicide note. The Bronco was eventually spotted on the highway, and police followed it while cautiously negotiating over the phone with Simpson, who was riding in the passenger seat with a gun to his head. The hour-long low-speed chase was broadcast live nationwide via a swarm of hovering news helicopters. This. And then crowds gathered along the highway to cheer the passing Bronco. Um, 95 million viewers watched on TV. Isn't that That's crazy? crazy. Yes. So they watched, so they pulled up. So finally the Bronco pulls up to the Simpsons house and that's where OJ was cuffed and arrested. Um, so the highly publicized trial lasted 252 days. That's the longest trial wow. in LA history. Um, so obviously it made instant celebrities out of everybody involved. Um, the prosecution accused Simpson of having committed the murder out of jealousy. Um, apparently Gold Ron Goldman was only a friend, but Simpson didn't know that. And ca they called a parade of witnesses um, to testify that Simpson had been abusing Brown. They even played a call that Brown made in 1989 while Simpson was attacking her. Um, they also presented circumstantial evidence, including a bloody glove. <laughs> so the glove, just remember the glove, okay, <laughs> found at Simpson's house that matched a glove found at Brown's. So Simpson's defense team, which were called the dream team, was comprised of eight of the country's most famous attorneys. And they argued that Simpson was another black man framed by racist cops with planted evidence. After all, it had only been two years since you know, the Rodney King Rodney thing King riots, that we yeah. talked about. Exactly. And the defense um, dug up um, and played old audio tapes of Mark Furman, who was the detective who found the bloody glove outside Simpson's house, using the N-word over 50 times while discussing how he and other officers would sometimes plant evidence to help get convictions. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. Um, but almost the most, in the most the the theatrical moment of the trial, the prosecution had Simpson try on the aforementioned bloody glove. Oh, I remember <laughs> after, this. Yes. So after Simpson struggled to put on, pull on the glove, his lawyer, Johnny Cochran, famous, famously cried, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Acquit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the defense's forensic expert also poked holes in the prosecution's DNA evidence. So despite this long, drawn-out case, in October of 1995, the jury spent only three hours deliberating Simpson's guilt. And 150 million people watched live on TV. Michelle and I were one of those people. As they finally delivered their verdict, 
not guilty. This news divided the country. Many white people thought that Simpson had gotten away with murder, while many black people saw the verdict as a triumph over racism. Um, Simpson was actually sued. Um, so even though he was found not guilty in the criminal trial, he was then sued by the families of Brown and Goldman for wrongful death um, in a civil case. And the process, so the prosecution only needed to prove that there was more than a 50% chance that the defendant did it. Simpson was actually re was found responsible for both deaths and ordered to pay a total of $33.5 million in damages. Um, in 2007, Simpson and some buddies robbed a sports memorabilia, memorabilia dealer, claiming they were retrieving some of Simpson's stolen memorabilia. And he was arrested soon after and sentenced to 33 years behind bars for armed robbery. Oh, the irony, right? Okay. So there we go. That's, that's cool. So the reason why we still care is this scandal like showed a racially divided America, which sadly to say is still happening today. So it's so like still exists. I don't, I don't feel like we've really learned that much people. Okay. Um, the scandal also put a spotlight on domestic violence. So um, the police responded to eight domestic violence calls at this then Simpson Brown house um, before they actually took Simpson into custody in 1989 for assaulting his wife um you know at that yeah time, i remember there had been a history uh, crazy crazy yeah. yeah um so but all that the sim the, all that simpson got as a punishment in 1989 after being taken in after eight calls was community service and a 700 fine um but he was an act at like an active athlete at that point wasn't he I believe so. Yeah. yeah. So that could be like a whole other. And that's a know, whole other. Whole other thing. Hole. Um, ooh, ooh, ooh. Okay. 1996. Um, Michelle. Location. Uh, uh, I'm just going to, uh, I think California. No. East coast, West coast. Oh, I don't know. It's, it's a coastal war. And between some rappers, you know, you know. Who oh, it it's the big, it's the Tupac. Yeah, and Biggie. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. So apparently, um, this one says rappers Biggie and Tupac murdered amid East West Coast rap rivalry. All right. So Tupac, Tupac Shakur, and Biggie Smalls were two of hip hop's rising stars, but they are also two of the most public faces of the East Coast West Coast rap rivalry. Um, their, un their murders are still unsolved to this day, and mm -hmm. they were only six months apart. They were a big blow to the music world, and they totally changed the hip-hop culture forever, uh, for sure. I totally, I mean, all the people, the pl key players in this were Sean Diddy Combs is, if you guys don't know who that is, that's P. Diddy. P. Diddy. Okay. Puff Daddy. Tons of names. Tons of names. But he was the president of Bad Boy Records. Um, uh -huh. And Tupac was a death row west coast rapper and biggie smalls was a bad boy east coast rapper and then suge i was Knight, like biggie yeah i was like biggie was with p diddy uh yes biggie was with p diddy and tupac was with suge, suge knight, knight. Yeah. yes of death row records um and unfortunately so did la's inner city gangs so the mob um, Pyru Bloods supported Death Row, 
which is uh, Suge Knight's recording company. Right. And, and then it, would it be the Crips who and were... the Crips? Yeah, yeah. And the Southside Crips supported Bad Boy, Bad Boy, which is uh, Diddy's. OK, so despite yeah. this coastal feud, Tupac and Biggie remained friends. But that all changed in 1994. Um, on November 30th, 1994, uh, Biggie and Tupac were both recording tracks at Quad Studio in New York City when Tupac and his entourage were ambushed in the lobby and robbed at gunpoint. Tupac was shot five times, including once in the head, but he actually survived this without any serious injuries. The government did take off with $40,000 worth of jewelry that Tupac was wearing at the time. Biggie reportedly denied having anything to do with the shooting, but Tupac became convinced Biggie and Diddy set him up. So two months after this shooting, Biggie released this song, who shot ya as a B-side to his hit debut album, Ready to Die. The song was recorded before the shooting, but Tupac saw it as a diss track in which Biggie mocked the shooting and even took credit for it. As a comeback to, his, to Biggie's track, Tupac then released the single, Hit Him Up, a few months later. In it, he alludes to Biggie's involvement in the shooting and talks about violently taking down the bad boy rappers. So this all-out lyric, war was heated was heating things up and it was resulting it resulted in a series of violent attacks on both sides um on september 7th 1996 tupac and suge were in las vegas for the tyson um tyson boxing match at the mgm grand after the match tupac and his entourage were caught on hotel security cameras beating and kicking a man in the lobby According to later reports, one of Tupac's bodyguards recognized the man as part of a mob of Crips who had beaten, robbed him of a gold death row necklace in a footlocker a month earlier. They left the man in the lobby and fled in a convoy of cars. While Tupac's car was stopped at a traffic light, a white Cadillac pulled up next to it and someone inside fired at Tupac, hitting him three times. He was rushed to the hospital, but died six days later. He was only 25 years old. Damn. Um, yeah, because of this rivalry between, you know, the East and the West Coast, many people actually believe that Biggie was involved in Tupac's murder. Um, but he denied having anything to do with it. And he insisted he was recording in New York on the night of the Vegas shooting. But that didn't stop the ro- rumors. And then just six months later, on March 9th, 1997, Biggie was murdered too. He was in L.A. to promote his new album and present an award at the Soul Train Awards. While his car was stopped at a red light. Huh, does that sound familiar? I think so. A man in a white Chevy Impala pulled up next to it and shot Biggie in the chest. Biggie was only 24 years old when he died. Dang. So it's crazy. They were super young. Um, and these, like I said, these are still unsolved, you guys, after no real evidence um that the deaths are connected um and they actually there's a documentary called biggie and tupac which was released in 2002 and there was um notorious that was released released in 2009 um platinum so tupac's um the album that was released after tupac's death the don kilomat kilom (laughs) kilomati kilomati the seven day theory went platinum five times. And after that, Death Row Records released 10 more Tupac albums. I was making him say, the- 
He's the best-selling hip-hop artist of all times, and he's dead, okay? Yeah. And his song, Dear Mama, was added to the Library of Congress's permanent collection, and the University of California, Berkeley, even ran a a class on the works of Tupac in 2007. I remember Um, those jamming to changes. Oh, my God. That song is amazing. I love that song. Me too. Now I want to go back and, like, download some Tupac. That. okay and some biggie too so they were actually these murders were a wake-up call to the hip-hop hip-hop community to end smack talk um because in the ni- early 1990s a lot of the rap music glorified violence i'm pretty sure it still does and lots of rap musicians publicly threatened each other um but the, it, it still loss, happens i that's what i said i'm like i'm pretty sure we're not learning that much you guys okay eminem and mgk currently do that right now against each other totally totally it showed that being a rap star also wasn't a protector from the dangers of the street (laughs) right so hip-hop is still one of the few legal routes for the kids growing up in poverty to make it big but that fame can come with a price and so they even though they showed that you know they can make people can make it big you know turn a poor kid from the ghetto into a star it wasn't necessarily safer. And, you know, a lot of the peeps were still involved in gangs and shit. So, you know. Okay. Um, moving right along. So now it's not murder, but scandal again. Uh, do you know, like, uh, 1998, and it's a presidential, presidential scandal. Oh, I'm going to go ahead and guess that it's Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. You're right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right, guys. So they, they, people still, Monica actually has a really cool Twitter account. <laughs> She's super hilarious. If you guys don't follow her, you should. She makes fun of herself all the time. So basically, Monica Lewinsky, she was a, an intern during um, President Clinton's uh, first term in 1995. And then she became an employee. Um, she was transferred to the Pentagon in 1996 because the supervisors thought that she was spending spending an inappropriate amount of time in the Oval Office. Uh, meanwhile, President Clinton was under fire from Republicans and his in an independent counsel, Ken Starr, who was a lawyer. The Republicans and Starr did not like Clinton's politics, and they were trying to find evidence that he had done something wrong. Throughout Clinton's presidency, um, Starr investigated many of his personnel political and business dealings, including a lawsuit filed in 1994 by Paula Jones, who was a former employee who accused Clinton of sexual harassment during the time he was governor of Arkansas, though she didn't sue him until he was president. Ooh, convenient. So during that Jones trial, the president was questioned about his relationship with Lewinsky. Under oath, he repeatedly denied having an affair with her, and Lewinsky did the same. Despite all of um, Starr's investigations, he couldn't get anything on the president until a woman named Linda Tripp handed Starr some interesting tapes. So Tripp had become friends with Lewinsky after she was transferred to the Pentagon. The tapes were phone conversations between the two women that Tripp had secretly recorded. On the tapes, an unsuspecting Lewinsky spilled explicit details about a sexual affair she'd had with the president, talking about the times they'd had oral sex and even mentioning an incident 
where the president ruined one of her dressing dresses by ejaculating on it. Uh, Trip convinced Lewinsky not to dry clean the ruined dress or get rid of the gifts that Clinton had given her in the hopes that the items could all be used against him. So why Trip did this um, isn't really clear to this day, but we know that she was a loyal Republican. So the reason could have been political. Um, some also say that she was planning to write a book about the situation, um, but she hasn't done so yet. So with these tapes, Starr could actually prove that the president had lied under oath, which is perjury. Um, and that's against the law. So Starr threatened Lewinsky with the charges of perjury in order to strike a deal. Um, she wanted her to hand over the dress uh, that was, ejac- you know, that the president supposedly ejaculated on and agree to testify against Clinton. And then um, supposedly Lewinsky wouldn't be charged with anything. So with Lewinsky on the other side now, so start, you know, she switched sides. Starr actually had real proof that Clinton had committed perjury and tried to hide his lies, which is obstruction of justice. So um, Starr, he, he went into this whole investigation of the president. Um, during which he famously defended himself by claiming he hadn't understood that oral sex was considered sexual relations <laughs> and therefore hadn't lied. <laughs> there was a um, three-page report. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. A 453-page report from the investigation, which details Clinton's sexual misdeeds in pornographic detail. Um, and that became very popular on the internet. So based on this report- Of course it did. Yes, Clinton was impeached. He was put in trial to see if he should be allowed to stay president. Um, so he was for perjury and obstruction of justly, justice. Um, there weren't enough votes against him, and he stayed in office. So um, the saga didn't end for President Clinton, though, um, after those impeachment trials. Two months later, the judge in the Paula Jones trial brought contempt of court charges against Clinton for lying about his relationship with Lewinsky during the sexual harassment trial. He was fined $90,000 and his license to practice law in Arkansas was suspended. He was never found guilty of sexual harassment, but settled out of court with Jones for $850,000. Interesting. Um, Yeah. So after his presidency, he actually, he published his memoir called My Life. um, And he uh, devoted his time to various various public, various public policy campaigns obviously his wife hillary we know about hillary she served as new york senator and she ran in president for 2008 um she lost she also ran again didn't she wait that's not right didn't hillary run in 2006 2010 2016 is when she ran yeah against trump okay yeah that's what i thought so that's incorrect the 2008 year she lost it, um, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Oh, Linz, Lewinsky. In 1999, um, Lewinsky uh, had a biography of her side of the scandal called Monica's Story published. She also launched a line of handbags and she hosted a short running dating show called Mr. Personality. Well, very cool. In 2006, she graduated from the London School of Economics with a master's degree in social psychology. And so why, yeah, why we still care? This scandal put a spotlight on the moral character of politicians. 
uh yeah spoiler alert still fucking happening so again don't think that we're really making that much progress here okay so but after um so after this scandal um politicians personal lives and religious beliefs beliefs made headlines and the public also wanted to know that their leaders were not only making good political decisions, but also making good personal ones. So a politician's moral character was actually now after this became increasingly more important in elections. Um, And as a result, Christian and evangelical factions gained increasing influence on politics. Oh, fascinating. So there you go. That, that kind of translates into today's climate, I would say. Yeah, I would Um, think so. Yeah. And so the Lewinsky scandal was one of the first stories to appear on the internet before it spread to traditional media like television and newspapers. So it actually first broke on the internet um, on something called the Drudge Report. And then it appeared in print. So actually, this was the story that started the trend of stories breaking on the internet, which obviously is a very it's very today. real and happens mm-hmm. daily today. Yeah. Uh-huh. In 2000, Cuba and the U.S. were in a custody battle for a five-year-old shipwreck survivor named Elian Gonzalez. Does that sound familiar? No, this sounds new to me. Tell me about it. Okay, so in um, 1999, so November 1999, a fisherman found five-year-old Elian Gonzalez floating alone in an inner tube off the coast of Florida. He and 12 other Cubans had fled their homeland earlier in the week on an overloaded aluminum boat that capsized and sank on its way to the U.S. Elian was only uh, was one of only three survivors. His mom and stepdad were among the 10 who drowned. Usually Cubans found trying to illegally enter the U.S. are just returned to Cuba. But Elian and the other two survivors were allowed to stay pending an immigration and naturalization service investigation. Elian's great uncle, Lazaro Gonzalez, lived in Little Havana, and that's where Elian went to stay after he was rescued. So the story of this little boy who lost his mom and dad while shipwrecked at sea was all over the news um, from the start, but it reached a whole new level of media attention when it came time to figure out what to do with him. Um, so the, to the Cuban Americans in Little Havana, Elian was a symbol of freedom, of freedom from Castro, excuse me, and communism. They thought that it would be cruel to send him back, especially since Oh, excuse me, since his mom died trying to bring him to the U.S. Anti-Castro politicians, mainly Republicans, also wanted to grant the kid U.S. Citizen, citizenship. Great, now oh, I've got no. the hiccups. <laughs> to show the U.S. distaste for the communist regime. Back in Cuba, oh, I'm sorry, it was Elian's um, stepdad who passed away. Elian's dad, Juan Miguel Gonzalez, was back in Cuba. And Elian had been living with him before the shipwreck. And um, Alien's dad said that his ex-wife had taken off with his son in the middle of the night without his permission. He wanted his son back home with him in Cuba. Um, Castro was still in power at this time. And he also wanted Alien returned to his father, but mainly because he didn't want the U.S. to win this custody battle. Um, Castro gave speech after speech demanding the kid be returned and pressed 
Cubans to go out to the streets and protest aliens kidnapping by the Americans. Um, ironically, the U.S. federal government didn't have plans to keep alien. The immigration department decided that alien should be returned to his father in Cuba almost immediately. But his great uncle, Lazaro, and the rest of his Miami family refused to hand the kid over and kept appealing to the courts for asylum and legal custody. Throughout the spring of 2000, there were marches, speeches, and protests in Cuba and Little Havana in Florida, um, each side claiming it only cared what was best for Elian. The Justice Department tried to negotiate a peaceful handover of the boy, but his great uncle Lazaro did not budge. Um, so, oh, here's Janet Reno again. She's back on the scene. So, American <laughs> Attorney Jim. Attorney General Janet Reno wanted to put the matter to rest. On April 23, 2000, Reno agreed with immigration that aliens should be returned to Cuba, and she gave the go-ahead for an early morning raid on Lazaro's house. So a group of 20 federal agents wearing full riot gear and armed with machine guns, right, because that's necessary, stormed in and grabbed the screaming boy at gunpoint. By the way, the child is five years old. How terrifying, right? Right. Okay. The he trauma. Was then flown, totally. He was then flown to Washington, D.C., and then he was reunite, reunited with his father and his stepmother and half-brother. After that raid happened, after, you know, they kidnapped the kid, basically, or not kidnapped the Well, yeah. So I after mean, the raid, of. yeah, hundreds of Cuban-Americans were protesting in Little Havana outside of Miami, and they set fires, and they were throwing rocks at the police. Um, more than 200 people were arrested. So there was a, a little riot happening after this too. Um, so Elian Gonzalez, so after he was reunited with his father in Washington, D.C., they had to wait another two months for the Supreme Court to reject great uncle Lazaro's last petition for asylum. In June of 2000, Elian finally returned to Cuba and was welcomed home by a huge celebration. This was important as... Um, this battle over Elian had an impact on the 2000 presidential election. So the election was held just months after Elian was returned to Cuba and ended up hinging on who won Florida's electoral votes. Many credit backlash from the Cuban community against Democrats who had the presidency and wanted Elian returned to his father for pushed Republican candidate George W. Bush ahead in the vote and into the White House. The scandal also influenced the U.S. relations with Cuba. The custody battle brought a lot of attention to the American-Cuban relations, and it made many Americans wonder, wonder why we were so hard on Cuba in the first place. 1999, uh, so, yeah, on April 19- 20th, was Columbine. So I, I do have this book. It's called 49 Minutes of Madness, um, and it's, a, it's all about the ha- Columbine High School shooting. Um, I actually, so we can talk about that. So I actually, I remember exactly where I was when, I, when this happened. I was in seventh grade. Um, and I live in, uh, Colorado. So I live, um, I was going to school in Denver and this happened in Littleton, Colorado, which was maybe about a 30 minute drive from where I lived. Um, so while I was only in, um, seventh grade and I didn't know anybody, um, in high school at the time, it was obviously a huge deal because this was, I think the first major shoot school shooting, Mm -hmm. um, in our, in our lifetime. And since then, it's just gotten more and more popular. Um, and this book, um, well, actually story looks a lot at 
bullying in school and how that might, you know, um, play a role in in some of the actions of, of you know these school shooters. Not saying that it makes it right, um, because you know I was bullied and I never killed anybody. Um, yeah. But I'm just saying, you know, I think that that school bullying. I don't think I think that that problem's always existed. I feel like bullying's always been around in different yeah. forms. But I think that um, since we kind of you know we started growing up in the internet age and. Um, I remember, do you remember doing AIM chats, Michelle, like when you yeah. were a kid and yeah. like maybe, maybe going on the chat, like reg- random chat rooms and just like talking to people. Like, I remember yes. that was, that was something that I used to do all the time. And you used to just do like A slash S. Yeah. A S L age, sex location. Yes. Yeah. But you could totally lie about your age because I remember being four, 13, 14, pretending like I was a 16 year old, um, to talk to like older boys or whatever to pretend like I was in high school or whatever and I don't know I mean that sounds super sketch right but obviously think about it now think about how how much it's changed and now it's on our phones and it's just like right there back in the day you know you had to you had to um wait for the fucking dial-up and that annoying ass sound yeah if you you kids in the 90s you can't really appreciate this okay because um oh my god the dial-up sound was the so dial-up. and then it made this weird screechy noise that was the most annoying i wish I could. it was like it. It I, yeah. well someone could probably like just google aol startup yeah. sound yes, and that yes. yeah that will trigger the the memory for you or if you have never heard it now you can hear what we had to experience literally every yeah. time every time that we wanted to sign online um but so, yeah, when when Columbine happened, I remember where I was, too. I was going over to a friend's house after school and I got off the bus at her house and it was on because we're two hours ahead of you. Yeah. So TV. it was it was on the TV and I remember watching it because it was in Colorado, which I knew I had family mm-hmm. in Colorado. So then mm-hmm. I was very concerned about where it was. We we watched it actually on the news in school and I went to a private school. Um, so. I'm not sure like what public schools did. I'm, I just, I'm thinking about like how the September 11th, so that's something else that we are going to talk, touch on today. But I think um, school shootings, like that's a huge, huge thing that has, that started when we were kids and it's just gotten out of control. I think it could be contributed a little bit to how you were talking about the Tupac Biggie thing, like yeah, there's yeah. Vi- oh, gun like violence, violence there. Yeah. Oh, and also like in um, video games, right? That's something else that happened in our generation. Like Atari was the first system that came out in the late 80s. And then we all had like old school NES, like Michelle, I think still has it. Um, I do. Yes, <laughs> we grew up with playing those, you know, remember duck hunting. Like that was a, we had a shotgun, right? Like I remember being like a oh, yeah, duck five-year-old hunts. kid playing with my little plastic gun to shoot the guns, to shoot the ducks, which is obviously like hunting and it's not like violent death and murder, but there are those video games too. And I feel like that has um, definitely increased in our, in our lifetime as well. And so I, I could think, see- yeah. I think it's a lot of like we have a like there's a lot of emotions to get out for various reasons, whether it be trauma or like child like at home trauma or uh, bullying or anything. It You know, people are trying to deal with their trauma and it's coming out in violence instead of coming out in other more 
appropriate ways and more and kind of safer ways to do it. I don't think that people are dealing as well, but I think also with like we talked last time about substance abuse and stuff like that and millennials, I feel like I have hope for future generations who have gone through this lockdown training their entire school career and who have, um, you know, kind of seen all of this and who aren't, you know, drinking as much or, you know, using illegal drugs as much, um, that they will, it'll, it'll come back. It'll bounce back because it's definitely terrifying. This story gives me like the most visceral reaction. I think this is the first traumatizing event in our history that I, that I react to. And that I like vividly remember. I vividly remember. And it still makes me nauseous thinking about it. This was like a very traumatic event. And then obviously it was very played out in the news and the media. And they talked about this forever and ever. And, um, you know, since I'm here, I feel like they probably talked about it longer. And we had like, we have local, we still to this day, we have anniversary, you know, celebrations of, of the shooting um i've met people that were there uh you know my step my step cousin i guess she would be um she's the daughter of the man who married my aunt um we went on a family vacation the summer after that and she was visibly still shaken and it was like i mean i guess it was in july maybe june july or august i don't remember it was summertime but so that's not actually a lot of time but she was visibly different after because she was in the library and that's just terrifying i feel like uh we said the um or let's find the uh victim i feel like we should read their names so they counted uh harris and klebold in that number there's technically only 13 victims so rachel scott was the first dan roarball roarball 15 Dave Sanders. He was the only teacher. Kyle Velasquez. Stephen Kernow. 14. God damn. Mm -hmm. Cassie Bernal. Isaiah Scholes. Matthew Ketcher. Lauren Townsend. John Tomlin. Kelly Fleming. Daniel Mauser. Corey DePooter. That looks like it it was it. That's crazy. Oh my gosh. So um, I found, I finally found those numbers here. So 15 people, including the two gunmen, and then another 23 suffered various injuries. Yeah. Um, at Palm it's, it's bringing back a lot of thoughts and mm-hmm. a lot of feels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a lot of stories of like the survivors. Deep dive the survivors of Columbine and stuff like that, because their stories are really interesting. So yeah, so Columbine is, you know, still a, still a high school here. People still go. Um, and they have a memorial library now called The Hope. Columbine Memorial Library. Incidents such as these events obviously prompt educators, law enforcement, and parents to address this problem of student violence more thoroughly. Um, And there's been new methods that have been developed to train um, law enforcement officials better um, in these types of uh, rescue and response efforts. And there's also been new school or new programs that have been introduced in schools to educate students about peer violence, um, to develop better tolerance for others, and to incorporate safe communication to alert adults to potential problems. Um, parents have been more, you know, encouraged to be more involved with their children on a day-to-day basis, including knowing who their children's friends are, how they're doing 
I mean, that's just kind of, if you're just, a, if you're a, parent, a good parent, you should do that. But I guess, you're, you know, not that there are some that are not involved in their yeah. kids' lives. Which is well, sad. I think it paid attention to how parenting affects uh, behaviors of children and like the consequences. I think like it started shedding a light on the consequences of parenting, if that totally. makes sense. Totally. Um, yes. And I, th- I don't think that's something that our parents' generations ever had to deal with. Like, right. they, their parents never, they just did what they were supposed to do or parented how, how they were taught because that's the only thing they knew. They didn't see the consequences of their parenting like we see the consequences of parenting now. Totally. I mean, right. And like, just like we were talking like last session um, about all the you know parenting implications, it, you're yeah. right. That that is something that's that's come more into public uh, light and everything like that in just the last you know forty years. Well, and I think I think a lot of I I would think, and I'm just um, speculating on all of this. Um, I would think also that social media probably has this like. Mm. Um, hey, I feel like this when my parents do this and yes. someone says, oh, me too. And then you find a group of people that yes. all feel similarly, all because of one parenting tactic that the parent did not mean maliciously, but it came across, it affected the child and children right. the same way. And so we're right. just learning more and more. Totally. Um, so for sure. Um, yeah, now we, now we're just in like, yeah, the events that bring back a lot of memories. Oh my gosh, totally. Like a lot. And then just thinking about that is, sorry, we got kind of morose there, you guys. Um, we really did, but, but this shit, it it hurts. It's a big deal. It's yeah. still a big deal for for people that were alive when this happened and were. But we what's? Were, go ahead. I was just gonna say Michelle and I were old enough to realize how bad this was. You know, we were fourteen, like thirteen, fourteen years old when this happened, um, and watching it was really devastating. And we were in school, right? So just think about think about that, right? Think about thinking about that. And now that is something that unfortunately our students and all the, you know, people, administration and teachers and everybody and parents of kids in school, we have to consider this, that what if, what if somebody comes in and shoots up our kids? What if there is kids bringing in weapons and doing all that stuff? I mean, this shit is is still a daily problem in a lot of districts around the country. Um, luckily not in any of my districts or in the district that my son goes to, but who knows? Like it could, there could, it could be black crazy yeah. person, right. That just comes in and starts killing kids again. Like, you know, wh- when is the madness going to end? I just, but I, I think you. like, so, I mean, so we take the age of 14, right? So 13, yeah. 14, that's yeah. when these traumatic events started happening to us. And then if we look at generations before us, how old were they? And look at the generations after us. Those dramatic events are happening earlier for them. Right. And they, you know, so I think just to look at when these things happened, but then I would 
guess, and I don't know, I, I never really asked my parents or anything, but I would guess that their traumatic events that they can remember from their childhood growing up, let's say into, you know, college age. So 25 till the age yeah. of 25, I bet you they yeah. could count all the traumatic events, like big, big national tragedies on both hands. Right. Whereas um, we are running out of appendages. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, what? You want me to count my teeth now? Yeah. I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure our bones. We have we have we have more tragedies than bones in our body. Oh, I mean, because there's like I, I tend to forget about them now because they all just start running together. One thing that we didn't talk about well i kind of mentioned it was the um oklahoma city bombings oh yeah yeah in um 1995 and i did i found this whole book about it called american terrorist um all about um timothy mcveigh and you know all the plans and everything like that um but you know we could make that another thing because that kind of goes into like more psychology i feel like sometimes sometimes the american culture perpetuates some of the things that some of the problems that we have in our country, I yeah. feel like, you know, what well, I mean? and it's, like, it's, it's, a, it's almost a double-edged sword in the fact that like, I bet you there have been school shootings that have not been mass right. um, that have happened and, that have never been reported. And, and probably and, we're so desensitized to all this shit now that they don't even talk about it anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I I almost feel like by not talking about it, it probably helps get rid of the problem. I think it gets rid of the problem. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. Because with with all of the things that we have going on with social media and stuff, everyone just wants to be low-key famous. I know. Yeah. And you can do it and you can make money. So, you know, anybody with a phone could do it. They really wanted to. I know. But so I feel like some of these people use violence as a way to be known Uh, it's just crazy the things that have shaped us and the things that our previous generations just didn't have to deal with and we had to figure it out yeah there's no there's no training on how to help your children deal with these events we're always growing we got to keep we got to keep learning keep growing so we can just make better choices and i feel like that is probably a good summary for millennials. We yep. grow, we learn, yep. and we grow from it. And we grow. And we're pretty resilient. Pretty resilient. We've got a lot of debt, um, but we're, and we're changing a lot of shit. And uh, it's awesome, I think. This, in yep. this millennial's op- opinion, I think that we're, we're doing good for you guys. So I'm hopeful for what's to come summed it up okay you guys we're not going anywhere we're going to change some shit and we already are this awesome so um we're going to put all the resources for a section perfect all right well thank you sounds it was good a really good conversation um i'm glad that you know i had the opportunity to do a two-parter and um i can't wait to hear what you're gonna do next time i do guess next- we'll find out oh i'm gonna oh. leave everybody on the edge I mean, Ooh, we might goody. stop recording and then I'll tell you, but I think I'm going to leave everyone oh, on the edge. All right. Okay. See you later, guys. Bye. Hey, guys. It's Michelle. Thank you so much for listening to Unlimited Growability Conversations. Please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. 
to help open up this conversation to new listeners. If you want more information about things we discussed today, go ahead and visit unlimitedgrowability.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at unlimitedgrowability, or you can reach out and send us an email at unlimitedgrowability at gmail.com.